Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and we have got a spectacular show planned for you today. I hope you signed up to do the uh, reading the Bible together in Daniel. I I hope you've done that because it's going to be an incredibly great uh, study. And if you did sign up, you know we are on day two of reading uh, together in Daniel. And I have asked my friend uh, Jeff Verdorn to come in and talk about Daniel chapter 2. Uh, tomorrow's show, we're going to have uh, Anna Rask, who wrote the program, joining us uh, at the 5 o'clock hour. But today, we are going to look at Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to study it. So get your Bibles open and get ready for an amazing hour. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hi, Bill. So glad that we are going to be able to do this together. Uh, we're taking a very short break from our Bible Bible study, <laughs> which is the Bible Basics. Bible Bible. Bible Bible. So now we're going to take just a short break and get into Daniel chapter 2. I'm looking forward to this. Sounds cool. And uh, this chapter is, you know, there's there's a lot of amazing prophecies in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel 2 is one of them. And we are going to see this vision of Nebuchadnezzar, this dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, and how it predicts the coming kingdoms over the next almost thousand years. So this is going to be a very amazing prophecy. To start Daniel 2, though, I, I think we should just come back one chapter and look at how Daniel got to Babylon. So chapter 1 says that the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and attacks it and besieges it. And there was actually three sieges on the, the, the city of Jerusalem, one in 605 B.C., which is where Daniel was taken. Then there was a second one uh, a number of years later. That's when Ezekiel was actually taken to Babylon. And then a third one, about 10 years or 11 years after that, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So that's when the first temple came to an end. An interesting question is, is that in that account in Daniel chapter 1, it says that the Babylonians took some of the artifacts from the temple before they destroyed it. And so the question is, did they take the Ark of the Covenant? Where is the Ark of the Covenant? Now, we don't know, but I think one of the best theories is that the priests who were attending the temple in that time when Nebuchadnezzar came uh, and attacked and destroyed Jerusalem, took the ark and hid it someplace underneath the Temple Mount area. If you've known, seen some of the history, and I've actually been under the Temple Mount in some of the tunnels, there's lots of tunnels and spaces and caverns, and it's it's uh, quite a complex system underneath the Temple Mount area. And so I I think the best theory is that it's still hidden someplace under the Temple. And because the ark is not mentioned in the artifacts that were taken off into Babylon. 
So uh, Indiana Jones, of course, thinks it's in that warehouse, you know, in the box, <laughs> way in the back. Right, you, you right. Yeah, I, I, yeah you big, saw the end of that the one. big boulder. Yeah, I know, right. I know that. So the king takes all these uh, Jews back to Babylon, and he asks for the youngest, the brightest, the best-looking to serve the king, and they're going to be trained for three years. Well, Daniel is in that group, and his three friends, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, are also in that group. And they are going to be trained to serve the king for the next three years. There's a problem, though, in chapter 1, and that was they were going to uh, supposed to eat some of the food from the king's table. Now, being a good Jew, Daniel didn't want to eat the king's food. Why? Because it was defiled. It was most likely offered up to idols and therefore and, and, and strangled or not strangled, I'm sorry, um, slaughtered in the wrong way. It's, it wasn't kosher. It wasn't prepared according to the law that God had given Israel. So that's when we have that test in chapter one where, where Daniel says, well, just give us vegetables and see if we're doing well after 10 days. Well, sure enough, they're doing even better. It says that Daniel looked better than the other. And then it says that the Lord gave the four men knowledge and understanding and they rose to the top of their class, even though they were in captivity. And they were put into the king's service, and all sounds pretty good, right? But just a reminder here, folks. Daniel was taken from his home, home country, you know, at, at risk of losing his life. He was forced into service in the king. And don't forget, this is something that most people don't talk about. Daniel was put under the control or under the, the authority of the chief eunuch of Babylon for the king's service. So most likely Daniel and Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego as well were probably also eunuchs, even though it doesn't say that directly in Scripture. But that most likely would have been a requirement to serve the king. So then we get to chapter 2, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Did you did you want to talk about the... Well, yeah, that would be helpful if we could just touch on that a little bit more. I mean, that was kind of a curveball coming at me, so... Was it? Have you, you've never heard that before? I have not heard that. Yeah. And the look I got from Rosie suggests we should keep talking about that. Well, no, I'll just... Uh, here's what we'll do. I'll read Daniel 1, okay. verse 3, where it says uh, that, uh, that the chief eunuch named Ash... I didn't want to say his name. That's what, oh, why yeah. I didn't go... Ash Penaz... Um, was the chief eunuch that Daniel was put under the authority of. And so if the man in charge of the king's servants was a eunuch, uh, many, many scholars have concluded as well that Daniel and his friends were also eunuchs. No, Daniel never married. The other three never married. That's never discussed, never talked about. And that was most likely a requirement to serve in the king's court. Okay. So as a foreign slave, basically. Okay. So... That's interesting, isn't that? That's very interesting. Yeah, I didn't. It, it, you know, I guess I've I've uh, I've taught that for a long time, so I didn't think it'd be such a curveball <laughs> there. So, all right. And remember, that's not in the Bible. That's just a conclusion from kind of history and that and that verse, um, verse three. So, all right. So now to Daniel chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, verse one, and. When a king has a dream, he would normally ask the men of Babylon, all of the wise men and 
so on, what the meaning of the dream was. But he, he had been, he was tired of them, what he says in verse 9, conspiring to tell him misleading and wicked things. So he demanded all of his soothsayers and wise men to tell him the dream and the interpretation. So he basically gave an order, I want somebody to come and tell me my dream and tell me the interpretation. Well, all of his court says, well, no man can do that, king, except for the gods, and they don't live here, verse 11. So the king orders them all killed. All right, if you can't tell me my dream and the interpretation, you're all going to die. And that would have included Daniel and his friends, right? But Daniel knew that God could tell the king his dream and the interpretation. So verse 16, he asked the king, wait, king, I've got an answer for you. And that night... When Daniel goes to sleep, he has a vision of what the king's dream and the interpretation is. So he goes to the king and he says, um, the king asks him, are you able to tell me my dream and interpret it? And Daniel says, no. He says, no wise man or enchanter or magician or, or, or anyone can explain to the king the mystery he has asked. Verse 27. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he will show King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. All right? So Daniel heard from the Lord, and by the Lord's strength, not Daniel's, he is now going to tell him what the king's dream is and what the interpretation is. So God showed, uh, has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. So Daniel is going to tell him. Nebuchadnezzar listens to Daniel, and he falls down at Daniel's feet and going, whoa, I can't believe it. Someone actually told me my dream and the interpretation. He makes Daniel rule over Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are his administrators, and Daniel and, and the three friends are all set, right? Now, before we get into the details of the statue and the vision of the statue that he sees and that he interprets, I want to point out However, that in Daniel chapter 3, the very next chapter, after Nebuchadnezzar has this, you know, aha moment, and Daniel has this powerful interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar lets it go to his head, literally, because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head on the statue. And so he decides to make a 90-foot statue of the vision that he has, and then orders everyone to bow down to it. And we know the rest of the story. Rakshak and Benny, sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, <laughs> and Abednego. So I'm a huge VeggieTales fan. So okay. <laughs> if, you remember, if you remember VeggieTales, they had a show about this very story, and it was uh, called Bow Down to the Bunny or something, where someone sets up a giant chocolate bunny, and he tries to force everybody down to bow to it. And the three friends were called... Rack Shack and Benny. So if I say Rack Shack and Benny, it's because I've watched way too much VeggieTales. Yeah, I'll cut your slack on that one. Okay, thank you. And he says, everybody needs to bow down to this. And even though he had just said, surely, Daniel, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries in chapter 2, he orders everybody to bow down to this image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
do not bow down. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. You know the story. But God saves them. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar sees what happens, and he goes, anyone who says anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces. So once again, he orders everybody to follow the God of Israel, and they all get a promotion. One other aside about Daniel on this chapter, and the question is, where was Daniel? We hear the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they don't bow down, they're thrown into the furnace. But notice Daniel isn't mentioned in that story. And it's kind of an odd absence in Daniel chapter 3. So it's kind of like, well, what happened to Daniel? Did he bow down? I mean, I guess the options are he bowed down to the statue, which is very unlikely because he's going to stand up to pray for his rights when he's thrown into the lion's den, right? And he demanded not to eat the king's food so he wouldn't defile himself in the previous chapter. So the chances is that he actually followed the king's orders and bowed down is highly unlikely. I guess the other option is is that he went away, was on an assignment or out of town, or potentially because he was so high in the king's, you know, court that he was exempt from that requirement. Mm -hmm. But his absence is noticeably missing. It is noticeably missing. Jeff, let's take a little break. We're talking about Daniel chapter 2 with my guest Jeff Verdorn. After a short break, we're going to continue. Be right back. We are taking a, a very small break from our study of um, the foundational levels of learning the Bible. We called that the Bible Bible study, but now we're just taking a one-week break to uh, be part of this Daniel study that we're all trying to do as um, a family here at Faith Radio, and we're discussing uh, Daniel today, chapter 2, and let's now get to the, the statue. I want to learn more about that. Yeah, so the let's get into the specifics of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and how Daniel saw it and what his interpretation was. Okay. Right? So, so Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, this was your dream. Uh, he says that you saw a head of gold on this statue that he had dreamed about. He says that there was the chest and arms made of silver, and then there was this belly and thighs, and that was made of bronze— and then there was legs of iron and then feet of iron and clay. Now, we also learn the interpretation because Daniel says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he himself was the head of gold. So we know the head of gold represents the Babylonian kingdom. He then says of the chest and arms of silver that another king will arise And then after that, the belly and thighs are a third kingdom that will come and rule. And then a fourth kingdom will crush everything, and it will come to power. And then there is this feat of iron and clay. And it's unclear at this time 
whether or not that's a continuation of the Iron Legs or whether or not it's another kingdom yet. Now, by the end of this, we're going to discover that I believe that that's actually another kingdom because it's not just of iron. Remember, it's made of iron and of clay, and it has these ten toes. And we're going to see these ten again in a couple other visions of Daniel when we briefly look at chapter 7 and chapter 8. And then, of course, we have this rock. And this rock comes in in the king's dream, and it strikes the feet of this, of this statue, and it's scattered into pieces, and it destroys it all. This happens in the time of the kingdom of the feet with the ten toes, verse 44. And this kingdom of this rock, it says, will endure forever, verse 44. So I think we can safely conclude already that what is the rock? Well, the rock is Christ, and he is coming back to the earth, and he is going to destroy all the earthly kingdoms, and that rock will create a foundation of what we'll see as a mountain in which he will rule on earth. Well, that's Christ's kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom that is to come. Now, what are the other kingdoms? Well, this is actually, theologians have seen uh, these specific kingdoms um, for, for many years. This is a common interpretation. So the head, of course, is Nebuchadnezzar. That's the kingdom of Babylon. The chest and arms, this two parts, this chest and, and arms, the two arms of this, are the Medes and the Persians. This is Medo-Persia. The, now, the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, took them over, and they began to rule uh, for a couple hundred years after Babylonians fall in about 539 B.C., after that, the Greek Empire came and ruled, and that was from about 330 B.C. all the way up to the first century B.C., and that was, of course, headed or started by Alexander the Great. So the belly and the thighs of bronze are the Greek Empire. The legs of iron that crush everything in its path is the Roman Empire. And then I believe since this next kingdom, the feet of iron and clay with ten toes is another kingdom. I'm going to call that the revived Roman Empire for right now, and we'll see why in a minute. And then the stone, of course, is Christ's kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar receives this vision, this dream. Daniel interprets it, and literally God is telling the king and Daniel and us the, the next kingdoms of the world over the next 500, 600 years. I mean, this is an astounding prophecy that can only come from God, by the way, and uh, and it predicts. In fact, later on in Daniel, there's also more details about some of the kings that come from this, and there have been commentators have, that have said that Daniel so clearly predicts history that it must have been written after the fact. They deny that there's a God that can predict the future— which we believe in, and that's easy for him. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning and the end. But there are many who have concluded, oh, this book so accurately predicts the future that it must have been written after the fact. But we know that Daniel was in Babylon, you know, starting about 605 B.C., and he wrote it. It says many times in this book, I, Daniel, then saw whatever. So we know that it was written by Daniel. One last thing on this rock. Um... The rock, it says also about it, it was not cut with human hands, 
but it comes down, strikes the statue, and it creates this mountain. Daniel 2.35 says this, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel 9.32.35. Now, what is this mountain of the Lord? And is it described elsewhere in Scripture? Well, of course it is. For example, Micah 4. I want to read from Micah 4 a couple verses. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, now we don't know if that's the highest in terms of, of height or if it's the highest in terms of importance. So I, I think you could read that either way. It will be exalted above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the peoples. He will settle disputes amongst the nations. They will beat their weapons into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Hmm. Well, when does the mountain of the Lord exist? That's a description of the millennial kingdom of Christ. When peace comes to earth, there'll be no more war. Nation will not rise up against nation. They will go up to the Lord on his mountain. He will teach them. The law goes forth from Zion. This is clearly a description of the millennial reign of Christ, the kingdom that is to come. Isaiah chapter 2 says it this way. And it came to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all of the hills. And many people will go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach, him, teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, and for the out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So now we know where this mountain is. It's in Jerusalem. Jesus will be there. This is the description of the millennial kingdom all over the Old Testament. We have descriptions that, that he will be enthroned in Zion. He rules over the end of the earth. It will be an everlasting kingdom, Psalm 145, uh, that, uh, that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like the oxen, Isaiah 11. Uh, he will judge between the people. The millennial temple is described in Ezekiel chapter 41 on uh, up to maybe 40, 45-ish. And all the land will be changed to a plain, but Jerusalem will be raised up and remain, and the nations will worship the Lord as king on his mountain, Zechariah 14. And Revelation says that that kingdom will last a thousand years. So clearly, the mountain of the Lord that is created by this picture of the stone coming down from heaven, not cut with human hands, destroying all the earthly kingdoms before it, and establishing Christ's kingdom. That is why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wow. All right, Jeff, let's take a little break. We are studying of Daniel chapter 2, and if you are in that study along with the Faith Radio family, you know exactly that we are in chapter 2 learning a lot. We'll take a short break and be right back.
All right, we're back with Jeff Verdorn studying uh, Daniel chapter 2. We did a really nice um, study so far. If you've missed any of it, I know you're going to want to uh, go check it out at the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com, especially if you have joined the uh, Faith Radio family of reading the first six chapters of Daniel. We are going to find some confirmation in Daniel chapter 7, aren't we, Jeff, from what we just studied in chapter 2. We are. So, I mean, one of the things that we could also do is uh, this chart. I, I've got a little chart here with the with the vision of the statue and the centuries, what kingdom they belong to, and then how it compares to seven, chapter 7 and chapter 8 that we're going to do now. And we could put that online, too, with this. I uh, right? believe we will. Okay, so I will we'll send put that you, in the podcast link. Yeah, I'll get you that electronically, and you can put that up in the podcast link, because it's helpful to see this chart as we're going through this. So, so let's turn from Daniel 2, and we're going to turn to Daniel 7, because in Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision this time. And this is decades later, um, after this Nebuchadnezzar dream that he interpreted. But it, it's Daniel's vision is of four beasts. Okay? So the first beast, Daniel says, was like a lion. Now, this first beast, like a lion, corresponds to the head of gold. So this is King Nebuchadnezzar. And we can see that in Daniel's vision and that it says it has wings of an eagle. The wings were torn off Remember when Nebuchadnezzar went out into the wilderness? I think that's a reference to the wings being torn off. And then he comes back and he stood up like a man. And Nebuchadnezzar came back and repented and turned to God. So I think that that lion, like a lion, is Babylon. Daniel next sees a beast that looks like a bear. Now the bear is raised up on one of its sides. So it has two sides like the two arms of the statue. So we know, I think I forgot to mention this last time in Daniel chapter 2, but the Medes and the Persians, two kingdoms, came together. But the Persians were larger or more powerful than the Medes. So I think this image of the bear is that the Medes and the Persians, with one side raised up, is Persia. The other side is the Medes. The next beast he sees in his vision is like a leopard. Well, this has four wings like a bird, four heads, and the Greek kingdom, when it ends, when Alexander the Great dies, his kingdom is divided into four. So most theologians believe that this vision of the leopard corresponds to the belly and the thighs of bronze and represents the Greek kingdom. And those four kingdoms, after Alexander the Great dies, are divided into four the north, south, east, and west. So the four points of the compass, his kingdom was divided into. And then Daniel sees a dreadful and terrifying beast with large teeth and very powerful, and it crushed and devoured its victims. Well, I think that corresponds to the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. Now, here is the feet and toes again, because as he's talking about this dreadful and terrifying beast— it then goes on and starts talking about this beast later in a little bit, and it says that it had 10 horns. Well, how many toes did the feet have? 10 toes. Same, same? Yes, I think he's talking about the same thing. And then another horn comes up and speaks 
boastfully. Well, this is a whole half-hour study that we're not going to get into, but I think that actually represents a future character that's described in Revelation as the Antichrist, that he is the one that comes to power during the time of these ten toes, of these ten horns, of these ten kings, this future kingdom that, as we saw in the last chapter, is going to be destroyed by the rock that comes down out of heaven, not cut by human hands, and destroys them all. Well, what kingdom does Christ destroy when he comes? It's the Antichrist kingdom. When he comes to power in a future, during the tribulation period, a future kingdom in which he is going to reign over the earth. So I believe that the feet and the toes are a future kingdom where the Antichrist is going to come to power and somehow these ten kings, elsewhere in Daniel says, give him, meaning the Antichrist, his power. And then, of course, the rock destroys it. So we also see clues in Daniel 7 where it says, and the horn was waging war against the saints, right? This horn that comes up, this 11th horn, was waging war against the saints. Well, in Revelation, it says that the Antichrist goes and wages war against Israel. The saints are handed over to him for three and a half years, it says in Daniel. Well, in Revelation, it says that they are handed over to the Antichrist for 42 months, which is three and a half years. And the kingdom is finally, at the end, handed over to the saints, over to Israel. And sure enough, we see in Revelation that Israel will be saved at the end when they finally recognize their Messiah and enter into the millennial kingdom. So the pieces fit together that the feet and the toes are a future kingdom, and they're represented by this terrible beast with the ten horns in Daniel 7. And then, of course, in Daniel 7, we once again see the everlasting dominion, verse 14. That's the same as the rock that we see in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel even says in, in this chapter, he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, who is that? That's the Christ returning, right? I mean, that's almost identical to the language in Matthew 24 when Jesus himself says of his second coming, then the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And we know his is the only kingdom that endures forever. His is the only kingdom uh, that will never be destroyed, quote unquote. So that is the kingdom of Christ from Daniel chapter 7. Just really quick to finish the statue kind of picture, we also have to look at Daniel chapter 8 uh, because Daniel actually has one more vision, and this is uh, not quite as robust. He sees a ram with two horns. Well, what do we think that kingdom is? A ram with two horns. One of the horns is larger than the other horn. Well, of, of course, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. Persia was larger and that's what's represented there. And then he sees a goat, and that's the Greek kingdom. Uh, it talks about this prominent horn that comes up off this goat. That is Alexander the Great. talks about that horn being broken off, which is Alexander the Great's death. And then it's divided into the four kingdoms. So we see four horns growing up in his place. And sure enough, that is exactly what happened. The Greek kingdom was divided into four, like we just talked about. And... Um, and so that fits perfectly. So Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 8 all give us this incredible picture of the future kingdoms that will 
come with the vision of the statue, the vision of the, the beast in, in Daniel chapter 7, and the two uh, beasts in, in Daniel chapter 8. Cool. It's very cool. And where do you think most people have l- learned this, through personal study or through good, solid uh, teaching sermons, or are they hearing it, do you think, for the first time? Well, this is obviously one of these, um, I mean, you have to have a fairly good understanding of the coming kingdoms after Daniel, and therefore understand the interpretation. But but remember, if you're just reading Scripture, let's, let's see what we can conclude right. just reading Scripture. In Daniel chapter 2, the head is called Babylon. It says, King, you are the head of gold. Okay, so we know that. And then in Daniel chapter 8, it actually names two more of the kingdoms. Okay, so let me read verse 20, Daniel 8 verse 20. It says this, quote, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Meda and Persia. The Bible will tell you that it represents those future kingdoms. And then verse 21, The goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is its first king. That's Alexander the Great. Hmm. So the Bible, God actually tells us that that ram with the two horns that corresponds to the bear that has the two sides that corresponds to the the chest, which has two arms, is, uh, well, Medo-Persia and then Greece. I, I mixed up the two kingdoms. And then, then verse 22 in Daniel 8 says, the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but not have the same power. So look at that. God names Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, you know, the legs of iron, uh, most theologians clearly see that that's Rome. Um, Really, the only... uh, significantly debated part is whether or not the feet and the toes of ten, 10 toes are the future kingdom. Uh, but remember, what happened to the Roman Empire? The Roman Empire in about, you can argue when, 4th century AD ended. We are not, the Roman Empire doesn't exist today. Now, a lot will argue that actually the Roman Empire morphed by Constantine creating a religion, right, this Christian religion, and declaring Christianity the official religion of his kingdom. And so some say that it didn't actually end. It actually morphed the authority structure, morphed into the Roman Catholic Church in some way, shape, or form. Um, But clearly, uh, I think we can conclude that the feet and toes are yet a future kingdom, and that is the kingdom that's destroyed when Christ comes to earth. That is the kingdom when the Antichrist will arise. He is this other horn that arises. And so, um, you know, I'm a futurist. I believe there is yet a future tribulation, a future uh, kingdom of the Antichrist coming upon the world. I think it's described by Jesus um, in Matthew 24. I think it's described by Paul in Thessalonians. I think it's described in Revelation of this future kingdom. By the way, when that kingdom comes... The, the 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 Antichrist kingdom, that seven-year tribulation. I also believe that the church is raptured out before he gets here and that we are in heaven during that time. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will surely come back and take you to be where I am also. Well, where is Jesus today? He's in heaven. So I think he's going to take us to heaven. So, but that is, uh, some believe we're in the kingdom of the 10 toes right now. There's lots of 
different views on that. But, yeah. So, like I said at the beginning, this so accurately, and, and I, we didn't even get into Daniel 11. There are, you know, the four kingdoms that came out of the Greek Empire. Uh, Daniel 11 describes some of the battles that those kings have. And according to history, historians have lined up the events in Daniel chapter 11 with history, and it describes it to a T. History before it happens. Who can do that? Only God. God told Nebuchadnezzar and us the future kingdoms of the world, and they have come true exactly as he said. Verse 19, he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Yeah, so there's lots of language like that in Daniel mm-hmm. in 2 and 7 and 8 and even 11 when you start studying it and comparing it. What is the time of the end? What is the time of wrath? What is the appointed time? Those are always references to the end times mm-hmm. when that rock Christ will come and establish his kingdom. So I I believe the feet and toes is a separate kingdom from the legs of iron. Rome has ended. There's yet a future kingdom to come that Christ will crush when he comes, Revelation 19, to tread the winepress of the wrath of God and establish his kingdom for a thousand years on earth. All right. I think it's time for a break so we can uh, process some of this, right? I think everyone needs to take a little break. (laughs) We're studying uh, Daniel chapter 2. We've moved on a little bit from there, but if you've been part of this study at Faith Radio, and if and if you haven't signed up yet, go over to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up to uh, do the six-day uh, study of Daniel. We're going to go through the first six chapters. We're on chapter 2 today, and we're talking about that very chapter with Jeff Dorn. You can also uh, get the great study notes that are available uh, through the study by Anna Rask, and she's going to be our guest uh, tomorrow night. At during the five o'clock hour. But we're for right now, after a short break, be right back with Jeff. guest that gets his walk-up music more than once in a show. Hmm. We're talking about Daniel chapter 2. We've also talked about uh, Daniel 7. And as we're just starting to wrap up our time together, I'm thinking, what does all this mean? And it certainly means that God knows the future. And maybe we can just reflect a little bit on how incredibly powerful is fulfilled prophecy. Um month or so ago, I was uh, speaking at Friday nights, which I do every Friday night at a recovery center. And I was talking about the power of fulfilled prophecy. And there was a kid in the guy in the front row, his name was Alan, and he had this plaid shirt on. And, and I held up a piece of paper and I said, if this was a verifiable letter that was 500 years old, and it was completely verifiable that it was this old. And the letter said, on this day, a guy named Alan will sit in the front row in a plaid shirt <laughs> you'd be pretty blown away, wouldn't you? And they all went, yeah, I, I would be. Just because the idea that something that was predicted that long ago could actually have happened, 
uh, was mind-blowing to them. Hmm. Yeah, and our, our letter, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great example because it brings it home, right? Our letter is 2,000 years old, and the Old Testament letter is 2,500 to 3,500 years old. And it is telling us what is going to happen in the future. You know, if I can mention, when I first started studying kind of the end times, future things of God in a revelation class, it was a two-year revelation class, actually, in a one-year Daniel class. And then I I taught the two-year class and the Daniel class, and it was uh, an amazing time. But one of the promises in the very beginning of the book of Revelation is that you will be blessed, those that God will bless those who read and heed the words that are written into this book. And when I was taking my first class on, on future things, the book of Revelation, my teacher asked us to write down uh, over the course of the year how we were blessed by this study. And number one on my list is I couldn't get over the, the confidence I was gaining that I can trust this book from beginning to end that it was God's word, not man's word. That, uh, you know, Peter says that no prophecy had its origin in, uh, in men, but men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the inspiration of Scripture, that these men wrote what God wanted them to write. And if you want proof for that, and we talked about this in our Bible study, uh, Bible, Bible, Bible study, yeah. <laughs> in our Bible Bible study that yeah. we've been doing, that there, there is no greater proof than fulfilled prophecy for the inspiration of Scripture. Because who do you know that can tell you the future a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 500 years from now, or 2,000 years from now? Mm-hmm. But God can do that. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so we can trust him when he says, we have an inheritance that he's promised us eternal life. I mean, these old prophecies are very interesting. What has he told us about us? He says we've been adopted into his family and we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us until that day. Until that day that that rock comes down to heaven, uh, from heaven, destroys the kingdoms of the world that day, then we receive an inheritance and his kingdom will endure forever. Eternal life with God is a really big deal. I love that it's kept securely in heaven as well. Yeah, it takes all the pressure off of us, right? It does. It's one of those passages where uh, it's a very strong passage for this concept that we have assurance of salvation, that once you're born again, you can know that you know that you know that you have eternal life, never to lose it. Jeff, I think you were going to also uh, piggyback with my illustration about something from Back to the Future. Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to let you off the hook on that one. We yeah, talked about that during the break. We did, and I mentioned the Back. To, I forgot about that. It was there was the I I think it was the third Back to the Future movie, and uh, Marty McFly gets out of his car. Doc Doc Zach, or what's what's his Doc name? Brown? Doc, Doc Brown is has disappeared uh, into the past. Uh, and he's standing in the rain, and this car pulls up. And this guy gets out of the car with a hat on and a trench coat on in the rain and hands Marty McFly a letter. And it's from Doc Brown much earlier, but he knew that he was going to be there at that moment at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like your letter with the guy in, <laughs> in your classroom. Yeah. 
where he's uh, sitting there in the plaid shirt and 500 years before you got a, a letter about it. So, yeah. But it is a powerful evangelistic tool. It's a powerful tool when you're uh, talking about the inerrancy of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, and how God is uh, batting a thousand when it comes to his promises. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, there are literally hundreds of prophecies about people and places and kingdoms and events that are, are have were provably written prior to the event happening and have been provably fulfilled by historical events. You know, one of the things that um, that happens later on in Daniel is that Daniel is understands that at this time that they are in Babylon is going to come to an end. And it's like, well, how would he know that? Well, that's because he was reading the book of Jeremiah, and in the book of Jeremiah, it, it basically says, this is before this happened, right? Before Daniel is taken off into captivity into Babylon, uh, Jeremiah says, I will summon the people of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against the surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them. So God even told Israel through the prophet Jeremiah that King Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and destroy them. Well, that happened exactly as God said. And then in, in uh, Jeremiah 25, 11, it says, And this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Well, guess what? You get to Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel is sitting in his room praying and reading Scripture, and he comes to the understanding that, oh, hey, our time in Babylon is about to end. Well, how in the world would he know that? He was reading the book of Jeremiah, where God said, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Well, guess what happens? At the end of the 70 years, there is a king, Cyrus, who writes a decree starting to, and this is in uh, Ezra chapter 1, to send Israel back to Israel. Uh, it, it gets even better than that. Cyrus, the king, is named in Scripture by name 150 years before he signs that edict. So, you know, there's, a, there's books and palm readers and, you know, whatever out there that say, oh, yeah, we can tell you the future. You know, how many billions of dollars are spent on on horoscopes and yeah, a palm lot, reading unfortunately. And all that kind of stuff, there is one that knows the future, infallibly mm -hmm. knows the future, and that's the Lord God. And he has told us what he wants us to know about the future in his word. And God knows the future, and he can be trusted with the future. And again, how powerful it is when you study Daniel and you understand fulfilled prophecy that it is a great confidence builder. It's just so humbling. You just want to get on your knees and worship. Oh, it, 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 that was this was one of my big blessings from Revelation. That um, blessed is he who reads and hears and heeds the words that are written in this book. And it's all about future things. Revelation uh, chapter one, uh, verse nineteen is actually a really great outline of the book of Revelation. It says, "Write therefore what you have seen, what is now." And what will take place after these things? I mean, the entire book of Revelation is about future things. 
And uh, there is literally prophecy about the end times, about the coming kingdom, about Christ's return, about his reign, about that we will reign with him, that we have an inheritance, that we will be participants in the kingdom all over Scripture. The minor prophets, the major prophets, virtually every book of the New Testament, the Gospels, um, virtually every one has prophecy pointing to our future. I think every Christian needs to understand. There have been I've been told over the years, oh, you should study Revelation last because it's the most complex. I think when you understand God's plan for the future is a wonderful way to understand the rest of the Bible. Yeah, start with the end in sight. Start with the end in mind. If you're going to read a, a mystery novel, yeah. what do you do? You go to the back of the book and you understand hmm. that, you know, Mr. Green did it with a candlestick in the <laughs> library, right? Yeah. And once you know that and you read the rest of the book, well, then it makes so much more sense as you're reading the rest of the book. That's how future things are with God. Yeah. Jeff's been great. What a great study. And again, I want to just uh, encourage you to go to MyFaithRadio.com and sign up uh, to read the Bible together, the book of Daniel, the first six chapters. And if you missed any of this wonderful hour, please go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check it out. It's always great to have Jeff with me here in studio. Jeff Verdorn has been my guest. And we'll take a uh, short break. Uh, I guess we won't. That wraps up our show for the day. I hope you have a wonderful evening. I will see you soon. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.